0: The book of Samuel, which we heard from this morning, was put together 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years. Suffice it to say the problem of power over other nations, empire is an old one. Empires empires only come about by conquest. Kings led conquest, that's why you had a king Empires resulted from winning battles, wars. The king not only led the nation in war, the king makes the nation powerful by maximizing its extent, securing a large economic sphere subject to common laws. Empire involves ruling over other peoples, dominated, secured, subjugated, pacified, and sometimes reserved. So Israel is ambitious. Without a powerful leader, it will be nothing. With a powerful leader, they'll be a player. They'll be like other nations. But Samuel warns as a shadow cast by the power of empire, yes, yes, you're going to experience yourself as powerful. And in fact, you will become, however, subject to the very power that you erect, the very empire you create will rule over you. It shouldn't surprise us that the social context of the entire Bible is empire. From Genesis to Revelations, the drums of empires beat. And all that religious story of the Hebrews is shaped by conquest, exile, slavery, warnings about impending invasion. Stressful, stressful. Times. And all those prophecies, all that talk about a kingdom of God, all that wisdom literature, all that visions of beloved community, all that arises counter narratives, poetic protests to the brutal power of empire. And whether the ruler is called Solomon or Pharaoh, Augustus or Nero, the Bible tells of no peace loving, justice-making emperor? None. So empires have been around a long, long time. And our own George Washington knew exactly what he was getting into when he fondly described the infant United States as our little empire. Our little empire. Empire was the open aspiration of the people we call the Founding Fathers. Their letters, their recorded speeches are full of ambition for the new United States. Columbia, gem of the ocean, is our oldest patriotic song. The people of the United States were defined by law as white. The vast majority of the people in the land ceded to the United States by the Treaty of Paris were indigenous what the Constitution called Indians not taxed. In addition, there were millions of Africans held in bondage. Those held in bondage and the Indians not taxed were to be ruled over, not included in a democratic, multicultural community. So founded as empire, it's no surprise that the United States remains imperial. With the Louisiana Purchase, the total land mass of the United States were surpassed only by Russia and the British Empire. The first generations of Unitarian Universalists flourish in the bosom of this little empire. That's where they made their home. That's what shaped them. Our formative heroes and heroines grow up, learn their Bible, love their God, as citizens of a Republican empire where the people bore arms in well-regulated militias to surpass slave revolts and remove Indians from their lands. What else would a militia be used for? And everybody between 16 and 60, every male between 16 and 60, had to show up for militia drill. Like us, the social justice and ethical dilemmas of 19th century Unitarian universities are shaped by conflicts and controversies generated by the dynamics of an expanding United States. That's what shaped them. That's what they talked about. That's what they wrote about. And at the same time, the economic well-beings of the Unitarians and Universalists, their very prosperity was enhanced by land seized and policed by military force, by canals, turnpikes, and railroads built, by government subsidies, by poor immigrants brought to labor in the new enterprises, and by African slaves working as bonded labor. All that, and trade, trade with the world protected by a pretty good little navy. This is true not only of the prosperous denizens of the Atlantic seaboard, I suggest that you may have seen a captain's house somewhere near a universalist church along a coast somewhere. Oh, how nice. With their sea captains, all those bankers that joined the churches, All the shopkeepers, investors, small and large, all of that was supported by the empire. And look west, too. Look west and the universalist, heroine, preacher, first woman ever ordained to the ministry, Olympia Brown, was born in a log cabin and attended a grade school in Michigan just 15 years after the kickaboo fox and Ojibwe Indians were defeated and removed from that land. The land made safe for universalist farmers and circuit riders by imposed treaties and soldiers and land speculators. Let me suggest that our liberal religious relationship to empire took shape in that moment, that first half of the 19th century. And while that relationship may have evolved since then, what with Pentagon Papers and Standing on the Side of Love and Study Action Proposals and Justice GAs, we still see the same pattern. The Unitarian Universalists, until recently, have enjoyed an expanding economy, an expansion made possible by the growth of our little empire to worldwide significance. And at the same time, at the same time, over the two centuries of our existence, Unitarian universes have righteously protested all the instances of injustice, the newsworthy examples of the many horrors that were being cultivated by the implicit violence of empire. Manifest Destiny, also known as Imperial Expansion, was celebrated in sermons, in poems, in lecture circuits, in editorials. If we read Walden, we hear a passage where he talks about his dream of Anglo-Saxons moving across the continent. So we hear this and Whitman, and then we sing the song America the Beautiful from sea to shining sea. Empire is celebrated but its consequences are protested by Unitarian Universalists. They protest at just the same place where they celebrate empire. In their sermons, in their poems, in the lecture circuits, in the editorials, they protest all the things that empire brings upon us, all the the violence, all the, the escaped slaves, all the Indian slaughter, they just protest this They protest the poor laws. They protest the immigrant laborers that are coming in and being mistreated. And they protest the progressive diminishment of women's rights. All that rightly enrages Unitarian Universalists. They would make protests in town meetings and state conventions and pen open letters to the newspapers. But we look in vain. We look in vain for any kind of comprehension that these injustices are inherent Inherent in the racialized class society that is constructed. In the militarized ideal that the little empire demanded. Power, violence is built into the system. One example of our complex relationship to empire can be found in Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is undoubtedly the person who most inspired our ways of thinking in the 19th century. Emerson was, on the one hand, a celebrant of the spirit of America. This little piece of Emersonianism has gotten into the Massachusetts license plates. Have you noticed it it's there? Spirit of America. Seeing the march westward as an opportunity what he called enterprising Anglo-Saxons. Now, Irish aren't Anglo-Saxon, so he contrasted it with the Irish the Africans held in bondage, the Indians and Mexicans, all of whom he saw as backward peoples. Doomed to be replaced, he said, by enterprising people, that is, people defined by his ethnicity, who challenged nature and subdued her." Now, Emerson had ideals, because that's why we admire him. Ethical standards, so naked aggression violates his sensitivities. Emerson understands that the U.S. war of conquest against Mexico is being used to add slaves to the United States, to the Union. So he opposes the war, but he selectively supports all of the annexations that follow if they advance his ideals, his vision, the spirit of America. Emerson again reveals his brilliant inconsistency when he comes to new states. Texas, no, it's a slave state, bad. No Texas, You do not want Texas in the Union. California, yes, it's going to be a, a center of enterprise and love, yes. During the 1830s and 1840s, hundreds of immigrants, indigenous nations are uprooted, excuse me, indigenous nations are uprooted and sent to reservations far, far from their homes. Historians call this Indian removal. But Emerson reveals his ethic of circumstance, his selective choosing of what he's going to protest and what he doesn't. Because Emerson saw the American Indian as yesterday's people being replaced by people who would improve the land, making most of the nature's gifts, he does not protest most of the removals. But there's a wonderful and interesting exception. The concrete circumstances of Cherokee removal from the southern Appalachia appalls him. The fact that the Cherokee took their case to the Supreme Court, they take their case to the Supreme Court. They say our treaty is being violated. The Supreme Court says, yes, the Cherokee are right. The Cherokee win in court. The court in its majesty saying that they, that, that they can't be removed. But, of course, Andrew Jackson completely ignores the court and removes them. Perhaps we have to consider this also. The Cherokees had marketed themselves as civilized and industrious and open to missionaries thus convincing many that the Cherokee were the lost tribe of Israel. So this is one case, Emerson and others who championed their cause, but they were removed, and in the walk of Trail of Tears from North Carolina to Oklahoma, half the nation died. Emerson protested, and this is fascinating because it teaches us something about forms of protest. He protested with the full force. He writes letters, he writes editorials, he gives lectures, made the case for Cherokee right to stay. But he's ignored. It seems our little empire's on the move, and indigenous people east of the Mississippi are going to be removed. Emerson's journal that he would never feel, he says, I have never, I've never felt so impotent. I've never felt so ignored. The, whole, the refusal of the powers to respond to moral reasoning appalls him, alarms him. So why didn't his eloquence move the powerful? He uses words melancholy and distress. It hit him hard. It really, really hits him hard. It's in his journals. For me, the protest epitomizes liberal Protestant and Unitarian Universalist relationship to empire. Emerson's response is an individualized response. He doesn't maximize his power of association by working with others. If we read the New England Protestant correspondence and diaries, we become aware that from 1837 to 1840, Cherokee removal is a big, 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 big concern. And for many, the Trail of Tears is a scandal. It's like a huge scandal. But beyond the letters and editorials and sermons, there's no mobilization, there's no vigils, no teachings, no mass petitions, editorials, sermons, letters to the editors, but no demonstrations, no political campaigns. So much distress, so much sadness, so much feeling of being powerless in the face of the decision-makers in Washington. Emerson experiences himself. In his class ignored, his moral outrages dismissed, and in all that he sees no evidence that Emerson, we see no evidence that Emerson fundamentally revisits his vision of Anglo-Saxon genius, or questions the logic of American expansion. He never questions it. Expansion entailed Conquest, the occupation of Mexican and Indian land, expansion entailed the spread of slavery to the conquered lands. But it's not really seen as part of his concern. Emerson does not examine the elitism that permeates his writings. At the root of Emerson's experience of impotence, In his amazing notion that what he calls the better sort of people, the thinkers, the writers, the teachers, the ministers, acting as individuals will be based on their intuitions, come to the right decisions. Democracy, for Emerson, is wonderful in that it is a blending of these individual perceptions. Unfortunately for Emerson, these fantasies are spoiled by the fact that ordinary people have been given the right to vote these uneducated working people have entered into the political process and they're fighting for their short-term material interests. He actually calls these people the herd. For Emerson, democracy is wonderful, but in practice, the political process is spoiled. The Whig party, the party of his friends, the better sort of people, the people he votes for, is dominated by oligarchs. They're timid. They're reactionary. And the other party, the Democracy Party, the Democrats, are the party of the herd. We might get an insight into our own liberal impotence in, in Emerson's disdain for any kind of transformative engagement with political process, with organized sustained action, with what we call working hard for change, moving people. After all, it sees ordinary people as thoughtless. If we see them as thoughtless and not enterprising, not intuitive, we won't organize. And organizing is the only way to make change happen. And these people, yes, they're not Anglo-Saxon, but somehow mired in custom and nature. And if one privileges only the better sort of people, then one is going to feel politically impotent because you'll be cut off, cut off from the heartbeat of democracy. Emerson and the liberals who followed him advanced the idea of intuitively guided, willful action of individuals as the heart of democracy, rather than understanding democracy as being a community-based process of discernment, change. In other words, Emerson had abandoned the genius of congregationalism Today we have our, second, our semi-annual meeting, this place where people actually are able to engage in making the decisions that affect their lives. Emerson learned nothing also from his own town meetings. Liberals who follow Emerson's ideal of elitism and individualism fail to understand that democracy is what changes and where real power comes from. Unitarian universes in recent years, thanks to James Luther Adams, have begun a long, long process of restoring our appreciation of community, of appreciating that democracy is a discipline, a work of love where we must give a little and we must take a little. And we have come to understand, I think that Samuel 2,600 years ago was right. Turning our decision-making over to a power, the imperial court, the war machine, even if it's a republican democracy, gives us the illusion of being powerful like other nations, but it's an imperial impulse. And we set up a power, and we set up a power that makes us subject to that very power. And when the empire is outrageous, not if, when, then as individuals, we will be morally outraged, but profoundly impotent. For there is always hope, hope in the deliberative work of intentional communities, hope in communities like what our congregations are called to be, that in other grassroots voluntary organizations that there's power to transform, to change people's minds, to find solutions to problems, to transform, to renew. In such communities, in congregations united in vision and mission, Unitarian Universalists can forge a whole new relationship to empire, a whole new relationship to power. Living into our proclaimed values, standing together in love and seeking to not to subdue nature, not to isolate ourselves from the community, but seeking relationship mutuality with all creation, committing to covenant with all that has been revealed to us and all that will be revealed to us as we forge beloved community together.